Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, Ben Rabidou is back. And on this episode with Ben, we talk about the very latest Canadian real estate trends, everything going on in the condo market, the single family home market, what's happening right across Canada and here in Ontario in the GTA, what's going on with assignments and banks and trends and population growth. We cover it all. Ben is the founder of Edge Real Estate Analytics. He's on Twitter and super active with everything he shares on Twitter as well. He's a great follow on Twitter. And if you are listening to this episode and you're trying to figure out if now is possibly the right time for you to get into the world of real estate investing, and yes, even in this crazy real estate investing environment, you can get access to a whole bunch of things that we put together, including free reports on population growth and student rental investing and that kind of thing, free books that we've put out over the years. The digital copies are all free and all of that is available at rockstarinnercircle.com. You'll find links to all of our videos, all of our podcasts. We do a free introductory real estate investing class. You can register for that there as well. And it's all available to you at rockstarinnercircle.com. That's it with the intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. We are live with Ben Rabidou and my little brother, Nicholas Alexander Carazza. Ben, did I say your name, last name properly, finally or no? Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, oh, that was perfect. Finally. Third time's a charm. Maybe it's the 20th time. But listen, before we get into like very important real estate stuff, and you brought up Bitcoin, I didn't bring it up, Nick, for the record. He brought it up. I do want to get his comments on, on that. Um, but uh, Ben, what's the deal? Your buddy doesn't go fishing with you. You catch a big fish. You post the picture of you with this massive fish. I don't even know what type it is. I'm not a fisherman. Um, and uh, you basically take a jab at your buddy saying, hey, man, it's a beautiful day on the lake. Lake. I guess you're on some lake somewhere. Where are you? What's the story? You, 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 uh, you fish and, uh, you fish with yeah. your buddies, but they don't show up. Yeah. So the story was, um, heading down to Lake St. Clair, which is a, a famous musky fishery. And so in the fall, we always get down there, try to get down a couple of weekends and tried to get, uh, one buddy to come down on, on Friday and take the day off. He couldn't swing it. And so I was down there fishing by myself before they could come on Saturday and, and got a decent musky. And then, so yeah, I just took a, a bit of a trolling video, just kind of, you know, just starting off with me in the frame saying, Hey man, really sorry. You couldn't be here. It turned out to be a beautiful day. And then I kind of stood there and then went, well, I better get this big girl. And I pulled, pulled this big fish up and I'm going to get her back in the water and dumped it back in and just a, and musky, it musky for my friends who do fish musky is the catch, right? Like muskies don't want to be caught. You can't catch them. If you catch them, you're like a hero to all fishermen. That's the way I need to understand this. Correct. Yeah, that's right. They're kind of known as the fish of 10,000 casts. They're, they're pretty elusive, big, you know, top predators. Um, Lake St. Clair is the top musky fishery in the world by a wide margin. So it's about the only place you can go and like consistently know that if you go out and spend, you know, a solid day, you're, you, you're a very good chance that you're going to get a musky. It's the only fishery that's, that's kind of like that in the world. Cool. And this has been something that's been in your blood for some time. 
Yeah. I mean, I've been fishing forever. I mean, it's, it's kind of a passion of mine. So yeah, musky are just a different, the, the musky fishing's fairly new to me. Um, so, you know, it's like anything else, there's a learning curve to it, but yeah, we generally I don't know how you do down. I don't know. Yeah. It's relaxing to you. When my buddies have taken me fishing, I bring a, I, this is a true story. Like I brought a book and as they were fishing, I sat in the boat and read. <laughs> that's how sad that's I know, like Nick Ben's literally loud. he doesn't even know what to make of that comment <laughs> no. and then I went swimming and they were pissed that I went swimming because I like disturbed like the water or whatever they told me so uh I I was never invited back after that it was a disgrace I was a disgrace to them apparently and to all fishermen worldwide <laughs> is it is the musky awesome. isn't that what Frank is that's is that referred to as the ugly pike as well yeah, probably. Yeah, they're in kind of the same family. Yeah, that's yeah, probably okay. right. Because Frank, who we, well, the guy we know, has a beer that he launched. And is it, Tom, wasn't it in the LCBO now? You were talking It's in some time. LCBOs, yeah. I don't and know if it's it wide the, yet. The Ugly Pike. called it the Ugly Pike. Oh, yeah? yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah and uh, for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and there was a big fishing controversy that he was telling us about, but those, those competition fishermen, I'm sure Ben knows that were oh, stuffing yeah. the yeah, fish. Stuffing weights, stuffing. Well, these guys had won $400,000 the prior year. And like these tournaments are big money in the States, right? Um, it's not, it's not your recreational, you know, beer league buddies going out for a couple hours to fish. These are like is big money, big sponsorship. So these guys had won $400,000 the prior year in this walleye fishing circuit. Uh, and then turns out they've been stuffing lead weights and, and I saw those yeah, videos, crazy videos yeah, and cutting yeah. these fish open. These great big lead balls were coming out. It's just wild. And some guy was saying he, they never understood why they were losing. Cause they had fish that looked kind of the same, but at the weigh in, I guess, to decide who wins there are yeah. these other people who are cheating. They were always had the heavier fish. Yeah, but, uh, exactly. Any rate. Okay. Yeah. Speaking. Yeah. Speaking of wild stuff, we got to get your, your updates here on, I don't even know where to begin today. You posted something i didn't know you can get a guaranteed 25 percent return on condos so uh where, where... well it, up to 25 percent oh, right up to so, you okay know, you gotta some, read the fine print i didn't see that yeah yeah so ben was having fun with someone who posted that like you know you can make a 25 percent gain on condos and it kind of was making it seem like almost like a lock the way the way the wording was well the they did use the word guaranteed right anytime you see the word guaranteed in any pitch for an investment it's always like the the red flag should be going off in your mind. So, so where, where are we at then? So tell us, like I have a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about. Let's just start with the condo market because I brought that up. What, what are you seeing in the condo market right now? Is anything surprising you? Whatever you want to share. What, what, yeah, well, why don't we, we just like, let's go 10,000 foot. So broadly what's happening in real estate in Canada is um, the impact of uh, rates is still kind of the, the primary factor that's affecting this market. And so look, Longer term, the population dynamics look just incredible. We had um, record population growth in Q3 by a massive margin. And on a year-over-year -year basis, it was 700,000 in Canada. We've never seen anything like that. So you, you, you kind of zoom out to the longer term, and there's still some very positive underlying fundamentals. Um, that, that really won't matter in the next little while just because of how severe the affordability issue has become. Um, you know, we've gone from mortgage rates that at a low, you get a variable at under 1%, right? And today you're five and a quarter. That's a massive impact. And so what I look at is, okay, what does that mean for your monthly mortgage payment? If you bought like a typically priced home every, you know, and you, you kind of run the calculations every month. And if I bought it this month and financed an 80% loan to value at the prevailing rates, what's my mortgage payment? And that chart looks like a hockey stick. It was basically flat from kind of 2016 to 2021. And then it's gone 
kind of parabolic. And so today your, your mortgage payment to buy a typically priced home is about 50% higher than it was a year ago. And so we could talk about all those other positive underlying fundamentals. It's just not going to matter in the next year or, or however long it takes till we get some resolution to the affordability issue. Um, and so that's kind of the primary driver of the market. Now, what's interesting is, you know, so we know that sales are low. Okay. And in Ontario, they're almost like, I think they've almost certainly hit pretty close to a, a trough because you know, we're at basically 1990s level of demand because they can't um, go lower. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because they just can't go zero. lower. Yeah. No, that's it. Yeah. Like eventually there's a floor, like you do have population growth. People have to live somewhere. They're either going to buy or they're going to rent. And um, you, you just can't, you, you, it's really not reasonable to expect that demand's going to fall much further from here. I think we've, we're probably at more or less the lowest for demand. Um, but what's interesting is that we're just still not seeing a huge influx of supply. In fact, if you look at new listings coming to the market in a place like Toronto, it was the lowest level of new listings in a decade last month. Um, and so, uh, you, you know, that's going to be the big question in my mind is what happens come the spring? Because I don't know yet whether demand is going to rebound first or whether we're going to start to see more supply coming online from people who are either refinancing at higher rates and realizing they can't afford it or, um, you know, uh, thought they were going to close on, an, on a pre-construction condo and own it as a rental and realize that they can't, they can't close and have to assign it or, you know, close and flip it. Like there's a lot of dynamics at play that I think are going to introduce some supply to the market next spring. And the question is, okay, well, are we going to have the, the supply rebound quicker than demand or whether we're going to start to see maybe demand come back to the market, especially if we get some stability around rates. So that's kind of the big thing I'm looking at is like, I think this market inflects one way or the other next spring. Um, my bias is to think that it's probably going to be like, I think prices are going to grind more or less sideways till the spring. And then, you know, if we get a big supply response, maybe there's another bit of a leg lower, but I, you know, it's, there's just, there's just so much clouding the outlook at this point. I remember we work with it. investors predominantly outside of Toronto proper. So like kind of golden horseshoe, we don't see any outright panic yet around the fringes of some investors. We are starting to see, Hmm, I might want to sell a property. I could use some liquid cash, you know, uh, let's, let's maybe list that, get ready to list it in a month. So I'm, we're with you exactly that like around mid February, mid March, we should get a feel from our client base. Anyway, are we seeing just like, Holy shit, we need to list some properties, sell these at whatever price that we need to sell them. Or are we more at like, ah, you know, it's just going to, we're just, the standoff kind of continues and we get some supply, but no one's really kind of changing on their price expectations too much. So yeah, you're yeah, right. I think this that's is... a fair point. It, the, the one thing that I worry about is that like the one dynamic we're seeing that has not been there in other, call them like mini cycles, whether that's mm -hmm. even 2009, but 2015, 2017, mm -hmm. 2020, where you had these kind of short, shallow, short, shallow um, downturns is there was never really an element of like forced selling right? The economy was still strong at those times. Rates were still relatively low so people could carry it. And no one was forced to sell at renewal. And the one thing that's concerning that I'm seeing right now is like, you know, liquidity in the private market is definitely tightening. Um, and so you're starting to hear the first signs of non-renewals yeah, in the private space. Yeah. Cause if you can't and get the private money again, you're out of, you have to sell, you have to yeah. sell. And so, you yeah. know, you've got that element. And then the other thing is, even if you weren't with the privates, but let's say you were with an institutional non-prime, like 
you know, home trust or an equitable, which a lot of investors used, mm-hmm. right? Because they had better debt service ratio um, guidelines, a little mm-hmm. more favorable for investors. Well, if you look at that, you know, you're still one year mortgages. And so if you took out a mortgage a year ago at three and a half, you're renewing today at like seven and a half. And so what that does to your rental economics is pretty awful. And so, you know, I, I do worry, like that's a dynamic we have not seen is that mm-hmm. element of forced selling. And, and, and I think that you're starting to see the early signs of that. So you know, who I, knows how it I, plays out. I think for me, it's, it's, it's all that makes sense. Then Nick, is your mic on? Yeah. Sorry. Uh, you're, you're I just, a little, Oh, you, I can hear him too. It just feels a little like through his laptop. Sorry. 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 Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. For me, it's the, it's, it's the condo market where I get um, uh, not necessarily the condo market pre-construction. And then in Toronto, most pre-construction is, is the condo market. Cause I think a lot of these people, I mean, how many real estate, you know, investors, or people that thought they were investors looked to yeah you got to use that term loosely a little yeah. bit yeah, yeah you know they're just like well I'm going to buy this because it's going to go up and I'm going to sell it and bank a hundred grand by the time it closes yep. and they're not going to be able to close and I remember in I guess uh, I was young but I do remember Tom you remember in the Mississauga area remember around Web Drive in the early nineties yeah. where they square that's one. Where they built a bunch of condos in that area about in the square one area and at that time those condos got decimated because then when I started investing I was looking at that area and I was looking at the prices which was like far beyond when that crash happened and they were just catching up. And I know the dynamics from my understanding, the dynamics of that time is we were much more overbuilt at that time mm-hmm. uh, than we are now. We didn't have the same population growth and that type of stuff. But I just think that that gets sketchy, especially when you have a building and everyone's got the same unit. And, and I know Ben, you share the, the single family numbers, you know, I just feel like it were, it's two different segments. There's still challenges there for sure, but because of the influx of supply on the condo side, that one get looked to, to me that it might feel a little bit more pain before uh, other sectors. I, I totally agree there. I, that's so when I think about, okay, what are the hinge points and kind of the big risks in the market? Um, right now, I'm focused a lot on understanding that kind of non-prime liquidity factor. But then the other big one is pre-construction because it's clear to me you're going to have distress selling there. We're already seeing it, right? And so um, just interesting anecdotes here because there's not great data on the size of the pre-construction market, how many buyers won't be able to close it. We don't really know that until it kind of happens. Um, but I will tell you that in speaking with some real estate lawyers, one of the interesting trends from the last few years is they they say that when they would used to review these pre-construction contracts, um, the typical buyer would be, you know, a, a couple and they were going to buy it and they were going to own it and hold it as a rental. Okay. And that was pre- predominantly who they were, they were dealing with. And they said in the last couple of years, it really shifted aggressively until, until, you know, a, a person who's buying multiple units and, the end game was not buy it, hold it, lease it out, own it long-term. It was buy it, assign it. And the point that he made that was very interesting is not only are they intending to assign it, they don't have a choice but to assign it. Because you know, if you understand the way that the, the um, process works is before you uh, consign pre-construction, the developers typically want to see that you have gotten some sort of a soft pre-approval to show that you have the borrowing capacity. That's, that's typically a, a requirement from the, the lenders on the construction project. They want to know that the buyers can actually close. And so you can go to a bank and you can get this kind of soft pre-approval where they basically check your capacity and, and make sure that, you know, in theory you can, but, but it's not a formal, you know, we're guaranteeing that we're going to finance this in most cases. Yeah. And anything but can change, employment can change and all sorts of things can happen. Well, too, right. But, but even more importantly, 
it's not on your credit bureau. You can't pull a credit bureau and realize that this person has contracted on this condo. And so what that means is I can go to this condo and I can show that I have the capacity to close on that one. But then I go to the next one and they don't realize that I've contracted to close on another one prior. And so I might be able to close on that one, but I can't close on the second and the third and the fourth, right? And, and there's no way for the developer to see that, right? And so there's definitely going to be forced selling there. There's no question. We're already starting to hear from some of the kind of big pre-construction realtors that um, they're seeing pricing that's kind of like barely above 2018, 2019 prices for some of these sort of distressed assignments. I think we're just getting started on that. And, and the, the big issue is, if you think about, well, who's the typical buyer of, of new condos in Toronto, it skews heavily to investors in recent years, right? And, and no one in the industry denies that. It's, the estimates vary, but call it half of new condos are typically going to enter the long-term rental pool at completion, which tells you it's about half investors. But when you look at the condo rent cash flow dynamics right now, and I track this month, and you guys have seen the chart. It's like, you know, if you bought a condo in 2018 and you'd rented it at prevailing rates and or, or prevailing rental rates and finance at a prevailing mortgage rates, your cash flow was X. And it was generally a little bit positive. And then you got some principal repayment that kind of added some juice to it. Right. And you roll that forward to 2022 and it's like, it's deeply negative, like $1,200 a month on the headline. And even once you add back your principal repayment, you're still, you're still negative. negative. So there's like, there's nothing to be gained from a, from a pure cash flow perspective from buying a condo today. And so like, Who's stepping in to buy this stuff at these prices? Like, I, that's what I don't get. I think right now the answer is no one, based on right. based on the new whole, the new unit sales month over month. And I think I've I've seen it probably your reports and elsewhere. It's it's no one stepping in. <laughs> well, most, and we're seeing like a lot of investors too. They're like, hey, look, I'm still interested in the sector. I still the properties I have, I'm happy and I'm interested in this stuff. But you know, maybe I'm just gonna wait. You know, let me just let me put my hands in my pocket. Just even like with new home buyers, there, you know, some people that were shopping for properties, they're just like, let me just see, let let this all settle. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna see things in a few months. So that's why I think there's there might be maybe not when there's if there's an influx of properties, but you know how we're talking about inventory on the market coming in the spring. It's why um, it's interesting to see. I guess it'll depend on what, you know, what the carrying costs are and, and where prices are at, because with a lot of people with their hands in their pockets, it does a little bit more demand start creeping out in the spring as well as some of the supply comes on. I, I would imagine it would, but I guess we'll, I just don't know how much and if it's enough and what the inventory will be and that type of stuff. It's, yeah, it's no, also the most dangerous. Right. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, man. Oh, go I was ahead, just going to say, I, I, it's clear to me that there are people who are waiting on the sidelines, waiting for some sort of um, clarity around how high rates are going to go. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you don't even need interest rates to fall necessarily, but I do think if the Bank of Canada gives some sort of signal that, okay, this, totally. this is where we're going to stop, yes. right? Yeah. Um, that alone, I think, is going to bring some demand back to the market. Now, again, I, I don't think it's going to, we're not ripping back to 2021, early 22 no. levels, but <laughs> um, no. but I do think the lows are probably in for, like, they, like, they pretty much have to be when you're at 1990s level of demand in Ontario. It does hurt. I look the, sorry, go ahead, Tom. No, go ahead, Nick. I was just going to say that where rates are like to go up this far, this fast. I mean, everyone knew there were there was some rates. There were going to be some rate moves. Um, I didn't think they would be this far. I thought I thought the system would start breaking. Actually, once the September one hit, I'm like, I don't know. I, I think things are getting squirrely in financial markets now. I think 
things are going to start breaking at this point. And it kind of did in the UK a little bit. I'm like, oh, is this the first kind of shoe to drop? Yeah. But then they've kept going since. So, I mean, I've been, I didn't That's think- That's an interesting point though. That's an interesting point because of what has happened with the carrying cost of money so high and the cost of money so high. I wonder if we get hit with like an economic kind of curveball that none of us kind of can forecast right now that ends up changing some of the Bank of Canada's policies. That'll just be interesting. I mean, it's just a, it's just a wild guess. But I also wonder how long- the Bank of Canada can pretend to be independent from the commercial banking system here in Canada because banks don't want to take properties back on their books. Look at the financial crisis in the US in 2008, 2009. Ben, we know people that were doing something that they would call strategic defaults in the US. And it was just a name that kind of took a life of its own, but they just stopped paying their mortgages because yeah, they knew the banks. Yeah, the banks weren't going to foreclose for like two, three years. Sometimes they stopped paying their mortgages for two or three years. The banks were so overrun with properties. They lived quote unquote free. Oh, I see what for, you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah, it was not an official. It was okay. not an official. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's basically some people just figured out that the banks were overrun. And they said, these guys can't even close on our foreclose on us staking them two or three years. We're just going to stop making our mortgage payments. Yeah. And, um, and I guess that got to be just terrifying for banks to hear. And I don't think we're anywhere close to what happened at, in the U S there, but I do wonder does the, how much influence does our commercial banking sector have over the bank of Canada? Because if they start to see things wobble, I just have this weird gut feeling that they're going to scream bloody murder to the Bank of Canada and get the Bank of Canada or the government. Government changes amortization schedules to say, okay, for you know, first-time home buyers, we need to make housing affordable. It's a campaign issue. First-time home buyers get 40-year amortizations or 50-year amortizations just in this segment because it's the right thing to do. Or the banking sector just tries to influence the Bank of Canada to make some changes to reliquify the real estate market without dropping rates. Because you can yeah. hold rates high and change amortizations. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying this is right, by the way. I'm just saying I could see this, the banking sector kind of push for this. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd say, you know, it's interesting we talk about the strategic defaults. I think to some extent we're seeing that already in the rental market here, just because of how backlogged the the LTV is, right? You, you, you mm -hmm. see, I mean, you, some of the horror stories coming out are just brutal. And I think that kind of got some momentum during COVID and all the kind of payment holidays and, and it feels it kind of feels like that dynamics happening to some of the small landlords i'm sure you guys have some poor yes. stories from some of your clients um look a couple of interesting things as it relates to the bank can and kind of how they're perceiving risk in the housing market one of the really important comments from uh, the bank of canada came just a couple of weeks ago from carolyn rogers who's like very senior at the bank of canada and she gave this speech and it was kind of a stunning statement. She basically effectively said like, house prices are coming down and we want them to come down. And it's sort of the intended outcome of our policies, right? And that was sort of the first time that you heard the central banks say, yeah, we recognize that prices are going down. Good, right? And so they're not going to blink yet, right? They've sort of put themselves in it. Now, let's keep in mind, this is the same central bank that said yeah. you can be confident <laughs> yes. and go out and borrow because rates will stay low. So look, things can change quickly. We understand that. But as it stands right now, they're not at all concerned about what they're seeing. I, I think they view this housing downturn so far as being quite orderly and frankly, being a, a positive thing uh, longer term. Now, look, we, we debate that, but that's, that's clearly how sure. they're signaling. Now, the other thing on the, the, the foreclosure side, look, look, I think, you don't want to overrun the system, but I also think 
we've kind of gotten used to a level of arrears that is so absurdly low, right? So if you look at the official data, we're still talking about, you know, 15 bips of arrears. They can like at least double from here just to get back to long-term norms, right? So there's a lot of room in the system to just normalize without even going above that into sort of- a, Yeah, that's a know, good point. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so um, we're nowhere close to distress, right? And, and, and this is funny because, I mean, you know, Nick, you were kind of commenting on this and I agree with you completely. Like if you had told me a year ago that we'd be sitting here with 5% mortgage rates, I would have said like, holy shit, this, the system's going to blow apart. And you know, for all of the concern, and, and I understand there's pain for first-time buyers and, and you know, pain for people refinancing, but the economy still looks pretty good for now. And there's really not a ton of signs of stress, even credit card delinquencies. Like, yeah, they're up off the lows, but like, yes, they still have to almost double from here. Like if, if people aren't defaulting on their credit cards, they're not defaulting on anything else, right? Like auto loans are ticking up a little bit, like that's kind of it. So there's just not, we're just not anywhere near the pain point where that will drive Bank of Canada policy. What do you think that if you were to forecast a little forward, some of the data out of the US, you know, specifically the ISM data, some of those economic indicators seem to be falling right off a cliff, like literally going straight down at this point. What's your take? Do you think, are we, you know, if the last 10 years were a grind up, property prices, basically since we started this business in 2008, I mean, our family's been in real estate since the 1970s. By the way, Ben, Ben, our mom rented out properties on just off Weston Road in Toronto for $12 a week. It was a boarding house, $12. Wow. $12, $12. Yeah, rented out rooms, not property. Oh, sorry, rooms. Yeah, yeah. Rooms for 12 She would change the bed. Is that like a really early Airbnb kind of thing? Or by the I guess, yeah. Maybe like a home, but what? Anyway, anyway, so we've seen kind of a lot of stuff happen, but since 2008, it was just a grind. Like the property prices just went up and then they kind of went up faster. Do the next 10 years, do you forecast them to be, if you just have to take a guess, just volatile? Because I wonder if the last 10 years were just pretty steady up other than 2017 blip, are the next 10 years possibly just straight up and then kind of activity comes straight down and then it goes straight up again? Are we just in a wild ride for the next 10 years? Because when I see the ISM data coming out of the US, I'm like, holy shit, it looks like their economy is going straight down. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really confusing time to be kind of a macro analyst because a lot of like nothing is telling a consistent story, right? Mm -hmm. You've got ISM looks deeply recessionary. The, the OECD's composite leading indicators look deeply recessionary. Yield curve is massively inverted. Like a lot of the, the kind of warning signs that there's stress down the road are, are there. Um, but the current data just keeps surprising to the upside. And, yeah, and I understand yeah, like in some cases yeah. you're looking at backwards looking with regards to employment stuff, but like even look here in Canada, we still have a million job vacancies, right? Like it was a stunningly high number last month. You had a better than expected jobs report, unemployment declined, wage growth is accelerating. Like all the things you, know, you had all of these, um, the small business survey, Still, like share of respondents that are saying that they've got a shortage of labor keeps going up, record highs, right? So, like, you know, it, it's a weird time in macro, and, and I, I, I do still think we're probably looking at a recession. Like, I think it's, you know, it's I'm not gonna say it's certain, but it looks pretty likely. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what what's the the nature of the recession? How bad it's going to be? Like, I just it's hard to envision a 2008 style, you know, really nasty recession just because we're still so short labor. Um, so all that said, now you, you asked the question, like, what does the next 10 years look like? And look, my, uh, I, 
those sort of timeframes are, are really challenging. What I would say, what I'm struggling with, and what I, what I think is like the big issue potentially is, um, are we in an environment of structurally higher inflation? Mm-hmm. And so I would point to, okay, we've gone through this last 30 years where you had tremendously deflationary technology, but that trend's probably going to continue. Um, but you had massive globalization, um, taking advantage of cheap labor in other parts of the world. And you also just had like really cheap energy prices. I know it doesn't feel like it, but in the context of history, mm-hmm. it was very, very cheap shale boom and everything else. Now you look at what's happening today. You know, who wants their supply chains going through China? Like nobody right now, right? So we're onshoring our, 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 our supply chains. There's no more cheap labor anywhere in the world. The demographics in China look terrible. The Eastern Europe, which was a kind of, you know, cheap labor source for, for years is no longer a cheap labor source. Like there's, there's no cheap labor. And so globalization looks like that dynamic may be very different the next 10 years. And then you layer on top of that, like, um, I just think we've underinvested and this is a much lengthier discussion, but I just think we've underinvested in kind of traditional energy sources like oil and gas. And we're going to go through this period where, you know, we've been used to this incredibly cheap energy source, incredibly mm-hmm. abundant. And I just, it's not clear to me that's going to be the next 10 years. And so, if that's your view, like, and which is mine, then I think we probably settle back towards an inflation level that's more like three or four percent than one or two percent. And you might look at that and you go, well, that's not a big deal. Okay, that's fine. One or two, you know, you go up to three or four. But what that means for bond yields is now, you know, you're settling at a five-year bond yield, it's probably gonna be you know, two, three, four percent, which means that mortgage rates are gonna be structurally kind of like three, four, five percent. Um, and even in a recession, the bank can might cut back to two and a half on the overnight. Uh, but they're not going to zero. And inflation never, maybe doesn't get back down to zero, one percent like we've been used to. And, and in that environment, I just think that's fundamentally different in terms of how you value income producing assets. Mm-hmm. Like, like who's paying a 3% cap rate for multifamily or some absurdly mm-hmm. low level if bond yields are going to average four or 5% over the next decade. And that's what I worry about. I'm, uh, it's, it's a, I'm, we're on board with you. I, I, so here's a puzzle then. If I just go big picture again with you, if debt to GDP is four to one, roughly I'm rounding global debt to GD, global GDP, four to one. And let's say, again, I'm making a major assumptions here, but let's say bond yields are four, 4%. If debt to GDP is 4%, it means the debt's growing just on the interest at 4% a year. And if the GDP, if the ratio is four to one, the GDP must grow inflate, whatever you want to call it, at something like 12%, just to keep the, the, the spread between them roughly the same. So, so if debt to GDP is four to one, and the numerator grows at 4%, because bond yields are 4%, so the interest on the debt's 4% is growing at 4%, GDP has to grow at a faster rate than that. Otherwise, what you get is this debt spiral move where the debt grows faster than the economy. And that's my, that's my biggest worry, to, to be frank. I'm like, how, how is this going? Because I, I, I'm with you. I see where we could be in a highly, you know, more inflationary environment. Bonds are going to make mortgages and things like this cost 4%, 5%, whatever they are. But that also has ramifications just at the broader picture of the cost of money and the debt growing at a faster rate than the economy because we have this four to one ratio of debt to GDP. 
Am I being yeah. clear? Am I being clear enough? Yeah, no, and, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, if you boil it down, you basically, the, the short answer is you need financial repression. You need to hold rates lower, artificially low, let the economy run hot in nominal terms. Yes. And over time, you sort of inflate away the value of the debt. Um, I, I don't disagree with that. The, the question, and what I'm struggling with is like, okay, the first couple countries that try to pull that off, um, yeah, fine, they can do that. But you can only screw your bondholders once, okay? Mm-hmm. Who's buying the government bonds after they do that, yeah. right? And, and, and the problem becomes, once you see the first couple countries doing it, all global bondholders are going to be like, ah, I see what's going on. And no damn way I'm going to be the bag holder. Let's dump them now, right? And so the, uh, th- that's what I worry about. And so you're, you're right. Maybe you could argue then that the central bank has to step in and you have just monster QE and they're just, you know, yield curve control and just unlimited... Yeah, I don't know what that world looks like. Like, I really feel like they're, and then you're into, okay, well, what does that mean for the currency? And okay, so if Canada's going to do that, and if they're going to try to peg the yield curve and try to keep rates low, especially relative to the US, like, well, that decimates the currency. Now you've got an inflation problem on, on everything oh, that we import. Like, there's, Just there's, stop, like, Ben, you're already nothing. scaring me. Yeah. No, but like, there's no easy way out, no. is what I'm saying. And so, you know, to pick your poison, right? Um, and I don't know what that's going to look like, but but there's probably going to be some combination of like, I, I think you're probably going to have to try to do what you're describing, which is kind of pin. And, and that's why I'm wondering if it's a volatile next 10 years where it's like, okay, we're doing this. And it's like, oops, okay. You know what? We can't come out and say it, but we need to get a little bit of liquidity into the market. We're not, we're going to keep rates where they are because we have to look like we're, you know, conservative. So we'll change amortizations. And that's a way to get some liquidity yeah. maybe flowing without, yeah. and you can keep the narrative like, Hey, we're doing our job. Rates are, we're keeping rates high, but like yeah. underneath the covers, you're like, you're basically making money cheaper by changing the amortizations. And I'm, I know I'm specifically talking about the real estate market. So I'm just wondering if there's this weird cycle in the next 10 years where it's like, talk a tough game, keep everything really tight. And then kind of like, okay, we're going to push some money into the market in weird and wonderful ways. And then maybe pull that back a little bit. And we're just kind of like in this up and yeah, down. No, and I know you don't have the crystal ball, but I just, I kind of respect your insights on it. So I was just curious. No, look, I think that kind of volatility framework makes a lot of sense. I'm, I, I don't disagree. And, and I actually think what you're talking about with regards to kind of like loosening policy around amortization length, like I think that's, that's, for, that's definitely going to happen. Um, yeah. I mean, think about it. Like you've got all these trigger rates. So just think what this means if rates just hold here, right? Even if they're not even at 5% mortgage rates, let's say they, they drop back to four, right? I mean, I've done the work on this. You roll that forward and you look at what re- mortgage renewals are going to look like in 2024, 2025 on kind of your five-year terms. And even at a 4% mortgage rate, you're going to have a lot of people renewing at $1,000 a month payment shocks if you had borrowed six, seven $700,000. And, and a lot of that is this dynamic of these trigger rates where it's like, we're going to hold the payment constant on your variable rate mortgage. And we'll sort of let you like extend your amortization during the term. But the way that the, the mortgages are set up is after your initial term, you have to reset back to your original amortization schedule. So originally you had a 30 year amortization schedule, but because rates went up and they were holding the payments constant, your amortization actually extended up to like 50 or 60 years for the first five years, right? So you, or in some cases, negative. They let you, they let you um, not even pay off just the interest component and they tack that onto the outstanding mortgage balance. So at renewal, like originally you had a $600,000 mortgage. Now at renewal, you got like $630,000 mortgage. Um, and it's no longer a 
you know, an, an infinite amortization. Now you have to go back to amortizing over 25 years. Those are the laws. Um, and so an easy solution is we'll just let them re-extend the amortization mm -hmm. without doing a full re-underwrite. Yeah. Right. And like, that's the, like, clearly they're going to do that. Otherwise it's going to blow stuff yeah. up. Right? Yeah. So, you know, there's certain things where you're just like, like what are the real constraints here? Right. And, and what are they going to be forced to do? And clearly they're going to be forced to help people that are facing these massive payment shifts. Yeah. Haven't they already said they're going to do that? Or is that just, they looks like they're going to, I thought, uh, I thought they had already said they're okay. So no, I was wrong then. I yeah. They're they definitely said... reviewing. It's definitely open discussion right now for sure. Um, you know, it's, it's tricky. Like, again, you're still kind of early days. Like mm -hmm. I know it doesn't feel like it for folks that are in the mortgage in, in real estate space. Um, but there's just not like, there's not a ton of pain on the streets. We're going to get there, but there's not like blood everywhere. And there's like horrible issues around renewals and, you know, de you know, delinquencies and foreclosures piling up. Like we're not there. This is like, this is still a, you know, it's painful for some people, but this is like, not a disaster. Yeah, and, and, and Nick, Ben brought up such a good point that the mortgage arrears, I haven't looked at the latest uh, data, Ben. I, I can't remember if you have it in your latest report, but um, they're still so low. So low yeah. I think in the US, they, they hit in the great financial crisis, like nine or 10%. I think it was nine or 10%. We're at like, Ben, I think you just mentioned like half of one point. We're like 0.5% oh, or not something. Even. No, you're like 0. 0.15. 0. 0.15. Okay. <laughs> and I think I remember looking at it a few years ago and like 0.9 under 1% was like a really kind of high rate for yeah. Canada. Yeah, no, that's right. Normally in a really bad recession, you get up to kind of like, yeah, that, that range 0.9, 1%, right? Yeah. So there's room here for, yeah. As much as wow. I don't want to give, I, I don't, you know, I don't really like giving the government credit for much um, because I, and a lot of things they do, I disagree with, but I'll give them credit for this. Oh, Nick, you're being very polite here. You're being this, polite with Ben here. You're being but, polite. <laughs> the, 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 but the, the stress test, uh, to be fair, the stress test up till now has mm. will have alleviated. I mean, I, look, there's a lot of people that did fraudulent things to get around it. And, you know, like, like you know, we all know there's, you know, this crazy things that happened in, in the mortgage market, but, but overall, that stress test will alleviate some of the pain that's going that that could have come down the pipe had had people not been um, qualifying at these at higher rates because they it, you know they were able to absorb maybe not this extreme but they were able to absorb some of it which is so yep. that that aspect of it is actually kind of kind of good. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I, that's the one thing where you know the mortgage industry, in as much as they push back hard against it, um, I think today are like, holy cow, that was. That was, uh, in retrospect, a good idea. The question, and I think it's a very valid one, is like, okay, now you're back to a point where mortgage rates are, call it normal, right? Like over the last 30 years, 4 or 5% rates mm -hmm. are pretty kind of standard. So like, what's the big concern here? Like it, the, the stress test made a ton of sense when you're dealing with like 1% mortgage rates that were b way below the rate of inflation. Yeah. You're like, well, that's just clearly, this can't stay here, right? So the regulators were very wise to their credit saying, look, let's make sure people can afford it. Is it still necessary to have a, you know, plus 2% stress test on a 5% sure. mortgage rate, or even worse on like an alt A mortgage where you're at like seven and a half percent. Now you're stress testing at like nine and a half percent. Like that's, you know, you start to go, okay, you know, what's, what's reasonable now that we're back to long-term norms or even maybe slightly above kind of normal levels for rates. It's a fair question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I was wondering is, do you think that, um, 
Oh, man, I completely lost my train of thought as, as you were saying that because I started. Let uh, me ask. Going. So Nick, while you gather that one up, let me ask Ben. Ben, what are you seeing on money movement? Because I know you do a good job tracking mortgages, money. Are you seeing any weird money movement coming into Canada or any sort of new or shocking mortgage fraud stuff going on currently in Canada? I don't think anything could shock you at the, actually at this point because you've tracked this so, so long. But are you seeing any changes in the whole mortgage game and some of the funny business over the years that's gone in with capital coming into the country or mortgage qualification? from people within the country, anything new in that area or more standard stuff? No, I think if anything, it's um, the tide's kind of going out. So, you know, who's rushing to falsify income documents to jump into a market that's falling, right? No, no, mm-hmm. he's trying to catch that knife, right? You see that stuff when the markets are going crazy. Um, so look, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't really think that's a huge issue right now on kind of like the international capital flight. It is interesting, like you just had out in BC, and I, and I think this is symptomatic or, or indicative of kind of the mentality of Canadians that we're starting to kind of get sick of some of the shit that we're learning about, you know, money laundering. And, and it's more to the point where you, you get the sense that people are ready to take it seriously. And so I'll use BC as an example. Um, they just, uh, you know, November 30th was the last day where you were supposed to file beneficial ownership registry documents. So you know, if you're a non, uh, or if you own property in any capacity, whether it's your holding company or whatever, you have to, you have to disclose who the beneficial ownership of, you cannot hide behind a numbered company. Um, and so that's very interesting. So now you're gonna have a searchable registry where people from other countries, you know, governments from other countries can figure out whether some of their corrupt officials have taken money and planted it in Canada. And if they have, they maybe have recourse to get it back, right? That's very interesting. The other thing that we learned just last week is, BC is rolling out an unexplained wealth order. And the idea there, I don't know if you've heard of these, they've no. kind of had mixed success in other jurisdictions. But the idea is this, uh, Tom, you are living in a $8 million house, but yet you are claiming on your tax return that you make $10,000. Explain yeah. <laughs> yourself, right? And, and this, is very, this is very powerful. And what it does is it flips the onus onto you to prove that you did not buy that through illicit gains, right? So that you're not laundering mm-hmm. money, right? Uh, and so if nothing else, it's at least a signal. Yeah, that's a good one. People yeah. they yeah. launder money. Well, yeah, like that's a real problem in yeah. DC. We know it's a problem out there. Mm-hmm. And they need some tools to be able to say like, look, this doesn't make sense. You cannot claim that you're a housewife living in a $20 million house, right? Something is not computing there. Uh, and so- it, it, you can debate how effective it's going to be in the long term, and it's had mixed mixed results in other jurisdictions where they've tried this. But the messaging is important, and the messaging would seem to be that look, we're kind of tired of this shit here in Canada, and mm-hmm. it feels like there's the political will to start going after some of this stuff, and I think that's a really good thing. I agree. Where so then. In Canada, are you seeing anywhere at any government level ch- changes in discussion on housing supply? Are you coming across any positive movements, any hints of anything that, you know, I know in Ontario, there's some stuff that might be changing. Yeah. What, what, I think it's what are you seeing on that front? Okay. Yeah. So I, I think in line with this whole kind of money laundering, shady stuff, I also think you're starting to see some acceptance on the part of policymakers that we need to have more aggressive means to sort of incentivize new supply. And typically I think it's taken the right form, right? Like if we think about where's the pinch point bringing new supply 
And I know it doesn't feel like we're in an undersupplied market right now. If you ask, you know, price is falling. It's like, well, how are we undersupplied? Sure. Um, yeah. But, you know, you roll this forward yeah. five or 10 years with this sort of population growth, you're going to have a really serious problem. We're screwed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so um, <laughs> the pinch point remains at the municipal level where you've got municipally elected councillors that have to listen to the next door neighbor bitch about, well, why is that condo yeah. development going in behind us? And it's, you know, it's a, it's ruining the vibes of the neighborhood. And it's like all this other shit. And it's like, they basically, they want to get into a neighborhood and they want to shut the door behind Never them from anyone else moving in. And that's just, yeah. And so, and, and um, what we're seeing now is a recognition from the province, at least in Ontario, that like, look, we need to, either incentivize municipalities to get behind redevelopment by tying funding to, to their ability to, um, you know, permit more housing, or frankly, they remove their authority to say yes or no. Right. And, and so you're starting to see some recognition that that's a real problem and that that needs to be addressed with more aggressive means. And like, I think, and then, you know, you can also debate okay, the, the whole green belt, um, releasing some land they didn't technically release they sort of released some area and then sort of shifted it over here so they on net net but you look you can debate whether that was the right move or the wrong move but it's a recognition that we need more supply and there's pinch points in the process and we need to work around those pinch points and so whether it's the right move or wrong move is up for debate but it's certainly indicative that governments are moving in that that direction Ben, if we put you in charge of housing in Canada, what are some of the moves? Yeah. (laughs) What are some of the moves, either interest rates or supply, like from whatever angle you want to take it, we're putting you in charge of the bank of Canada, or you're the new finance minister, or you're in charge of housing, you pick your role, but I'm sure when you're looking at the data, you seem, you know, well, very well informed and opinionated. So what, what are, what are you going to do? What are some of the things that you're like, I can't understand why we're not doing this right now. Yeah. I think there's low hanging fruit yeah. that, that we absolutely need to be dealing with. So I don't think there's a silver bullet, um, but there's simple things that can start to move the needle when you add them together. Right. And so from like a, a kind of really basic perspective, it's like we still have demand in this country that is um, just unhealthy, right? Like, like you still have some element of international speculation. You still have some element of money laundering like for God's sake, start tightening up rules around money laundering. Like that's just really simple uh, and go after them and give, give law enforcement the teeth to go after money laundering and illicit capital. Yeah. It's flows. an obvious one. You're right. It's an obvious yeah. one. And yeah. So like roll out a beneficial ownership registry nationally, right? Find the shit out of people who aren't following the rules, right? Mm-hmm. If you've got a vacant home that's just being parked because you, you know, you're, you're some oligarch, you just want to like have a safety deposit box again. Fuck that. Uh, mm-hmm. Tax the shit out of that. Right. So whether that comes in the form of like raising property taxes and having it deducted against local income, like that's that's a solution. So mm-hmm. raise your property taxes, deducting it to local income. So if you're making local income, you can deduct part of the increase. Right. But if you're not, now it becomes more punitive to hold a vacant property. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you, you know, solutions like that. It's again, it's not a silver bullet, but it's it, you know, it helps move the needle. I think trying to incentivize new supply is clearly going to be important. And so some of the policy directives we've seen around removing the ability of municipalities to could just removing nuisance lawsuits as an example. OK, so what some of these community groups love to do is a developer wants to come in and they want to bring new supply. And these, these local groups, they're just going to do nuisance lawsuits to just screw them and hold them up in courts and cost them. And um, one of the things that, that would be interesting is if they could bring in some legislation that would say, that's fine if you want to bring these lawsuits, 
but you need skin in the game. So it's going to be a $10,000 bond. And if you lose, that goes to the developer to cover their legal costs, right? And so like just making yeah, yeah. it, making it one. Yeah. for people to yeah. just screw, screw things. And then the other thing that I think is important is like, look, I'm in favor of strong population growth. We need immigration. The population dynamics in Canada are such that like, we're just not producing enough babies here organically. We need to bring people here. That said, we've got targets around permanent residents. Okay. So, so what we typically think of immigration and you can see the targets going up over time. That's great. I'm, I'm in favor of that. What I don't like is that we have no seemingly no sound policy around non-permanent residents. Okay. And so as an example, international students is a big one. Um, last quarter, just one quarter alone, we had an increase of 160,000 non-permanent residents. It's the biggest we've ever seen. Now, where are we going to put 160,000 non-permanent residents who are all going to be looking for rental supply? <laughs> that is not counted in that 500,000 target for, for immigration. That's a completely separate bucket. And so like, why don't we have targets around foreign students, international students? Like, Why aren't we forcing the university and colleges to step up and say, if we want new students, we have to step up and get the funding and build the rental supply that we're going to need for those students? Right. Like, it's just like, you just can't, just common sense stuff. If you're going to benefit from it. Listen to this. One of the property managers we know outside of Western university has a waiting list of 65 groups of students for properties right now. Another one at Western still at Western has 40. That's groups of students that could be five or six. That's just what they are aware of as the waiting list. One student rental that we're very familiar with is they renovate it. It's beautiful. It's it's a it is a five star. It's an anomaly. Rental. It's an anomaly. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's individual bathrooms. You know, like just beautiful house. They're trying to get, and they know they're going for a high amount. They're trying to get because they had to spend money on the renovations. So and now rates have gone up, which they didn't yeah. account for. They're trying to get per room twelve hundred dollars wow. per student rental room. Can wow. you believe that? And that, that, that they haven't got it yet. So I don't want to say that that was even achievable. Yeah. But just the fact that someone is thinking that they can go for that amount. Yeah, is, but like, so it, it, it's crazy. And like the universities and colleges have become extremely reliant on international students' uh, admissions as a source of funding because they pay so much more than Canadian students. Fine, fine. You want to do that? That's fine. But you got to figure out where you're going to put them, mm-hmm. right? Like you can't dump 200,000 international students in Kitchener-Waterloo and expect that we're going to not have a rental issue. Right. So like, and again, that's not addressed in any of the policies from the feds. They're just kind of like doors are wide open. Just you want to come, come. It's like, well, and and here's the problem about this. The problem with that as well is I don't think there's any planning with the government. So basically this, the the universities or call it now it's not even universities because now there's all these kind of small schools or colleges or kind of, you know, not even the, the, the big colleges people are used to that are popping up. And the business plan is to bring in international students to try to give them a path to citizenship. Like this is like yeah. openly being talked about. There's recruiters in other countries. So like this is a whole new business now. So now we have these, not even just the main universities, but we have this other industry that's popped up that is dictating our immigration numbers and our immigration policies based on the non-permanent residents. 
And there's no communication to what their targets are, what their, what, you know, like there's no planning saying, Hey, here's the next two, three, five year plans for our, our international student enrollment. So people can plan the governments aren't talking to them at all. So basically we have yeah. the government, the government immigration policy. And then we have this, like this, this secondary, this post-secondary student immigration policy. Yeah. That's, that's completely independent of that. Yep. No, totally. You're totally right. And I think what we're going to find in coming years is that that has been massively abused, that that what we consider an eligible post-secondary institution, I'm going to use that term very loosely, you're going to get these things popping up everywhere. 100%. That effectively all they're going to be doing is they're going to be mills to turn out international students, give them quote unquote accreditation. But really, it's just a cheap way to get a foot in the door. And we're just going to sell citizenship to you know, to pri- basically allow people to private to to, to sorry to, to profit off of this sort of private entity that's selling citizenship. We, yeah, we got, we got to- a guy in our office pulled. We asked him to pull the different uh, enrollment numbers from some of the co- colleges in the Niagara region, and he we and we like let's see where the growth is and what programs the growth is in. And there's the, some new programs that came out, and the programs where the growth is in is like I, I and I you know I, I forget, but it was like hairdressing and aesthetics and stuff, the growth is dramatic in, in a lot of things that just, you know, you, you that have been very steady for a prolonged period of time, or there's these new schools coming up and the growth is just huge. And these, these types of programs that you wouldn't expect to this kind of high level growth in, you, you know what I mean? Like we're seeing it. I wish yeah. I had the exact numbers here and we're, lo- we're looking at this. We're like, Oh my God, these are basically immigration mills. Like this is all it is. And a guy from yeah. that works with us in our office, he's uh, he immigrated from India I guess what Tom three four years ago now yeah maybe four years now yeah and he he tells us how it is there how they're trying to approach getting people into Canada and how the recruit the, how the recruiting systems work they put up the pictures there. of the Rocky Mountains they put up yeah. the pictures of the Rocky yeah. Mountains with the Canadian flag and are big yes. and and it's very prestigious to come to Canada and to come sure. to Toronto. But the thing is, like, you can see it's being abused now already. I'm not anti-immigration. I, I, like you said, we need immigration. I wish I wish they they were a little bit more there's more communication around it. And they thought about maybe infrastructure, like things like roads and hospitals in areas where there's a lot of immigrants going and like that, which is what we've just talked about housing, but the pressure on our hospital system. Oh gosh. Right. But it's, it's um, there's just no conversation. There's just no conversation around it. Like so I'm I'm pro immigration, but they they just got it. Like it's obvious already. This is the way the system structured is being abused. Like you said, with some of these, these things, why do we have to do everything like wait 10 years and then look back and be like, Oh, we made a mistake when the, you know, if you're on the streets listening to people, you can see that there's, there's things going on already, you know, it's just a slow moving process. It's funny. Somebody posted on Twitter. I think they were bang on. They basically said like, um, if you were trying to figure out a way for the government to like alienate Canadians and make them and sort of like stoke anti-immigration sentiment, um, it's almost indistinguishable from current policies, right? <laughs> That's because a good like, point. like you, if yeah. you were trying to enrage people, yeah, yeah. And trying to make it look like you didn't have a, a, a sensible plan and get people pissed off about immigration. It looks very much like what we see right now, which is kind of like yeah. we're not really thinking about these bigger <laughs> societal issues around like housing. We're going to put people in fine. Five hundred thousand dollars, uh, five hundred thousand immigration target. Fine. What about the two hundred thousand non-permanent residents you're letting in? What are we doing with them? Right. And how is that not lumped into the same the same bucket? Right. Totally agree with you guys on all that. What about, I'm just curious, your single family, this is something that always gets with single family supply. And I know now changes to the green belt and because they've opened up other areas, you'd think there's going to be more low density developments in those areas versus like, we're just getting housing units from, from, um, you know, condos and kind of higher density stuff. 
here's my thing. So with where where prices have gone of not real estate, but of so land, which is the real estate component, but labor, where that's gone with materials and that type of stuff, you know, is I think a big reason that there's been less single family development is that the cost to do it and then to sell it is higher than a lot of people can afford. So there's just not the same absorption as there is in the lower cost units, which are higher density. If those things, unless those things change, I don't see a huge rebound in single family coming unless I'm missing something. Am I like, what am I missing? Rebound in, in construction or rebound in it, demand? In, constru- in construction, sorry. In new, new construction units for low density housing. And I guess yeah. particularly I'm looking at the kind of, you know, the, the Ontario area, you know. Yeah, but you're that's, talking that's, traditional, that's, traditional detached backyard, all that. All, like, yeah, I mean, even if the backyard, today's backyard, which is, you know, only 10 feet deep or whatever. But yeah, that type yeah. of that that type of thing. Yeah, I think policymakers would probably be fine with that. Like, I think that the, the focus from policymakers is on increasing density to some extent, right? And so, you know, away from as much as we can, away from the traditional detached, you know, big footprints, big, big yard and into something that's more, you know, just, just higher density. Yeah. Um, I think you're probably right. I think that's, that's probably an era of the past until we sort of figure out how to move zoning forward and do it more thoughtfully. But even at that, like, again, it gets back to this population numbers. Like if you're going to add half a million people a year, to the population, yeah, what, um, how are you going to, how are you going to have single family in all the desirable areas? It like it's yeah. longer term. Like it's not hard to paint a bullish picture for single family. Once you're through the next kind of, you know, whatever next year or two where we have all this rates uncertainty. Um, ben, before we let we go, uh, let you go. We, I think you brought up Bitcoin, not me. So now I'm curious. I have a feeling you're about to smash me with something about Bitcoin. I'm not, I'm not sure what's about to come out of your mouth around Bitcoin, but okay. what are you, what, I'm scared to ask about uh, no, Ben's no, views not, on Bitcoin. I'm not a, okay, here's, here's what I'll tell you. I've been, uh, so I've, I've invested in Bitcoin in the past. Um, I've actually traded it really well. Like it got a lot of things wrong, but I've, I've traded Bitcoin really well. And I was out at the pretty close, like within, a, you know, I don't know, 5,000 from the peak. I was oh, wow. out completely. Um, and so, okay, well, what, why was that? What, and let, me, let me be very clear that I, I make a strong distinction between Bitcoin and virtually everything else in the crypto space, because I think by and large, the only real um, value of most of these altcoins is to separate investors from their money. Right. And that's like we're already good friend, ben, we're already, this yeah. is, this is headed in the right yeah. direction. You keep but, going. But Bitcoin <laughs> is different. I do think Bitcoin is different. I, there, there's, you know, look, I'm, I'm, gone way down the rabbit hole on this. I, I have no issues with, with Bitcoin. However, I knew this was, <laughs> I thought he was going to say, but however, no, it, yes, look, it's a, it's, it's a, it, whether you like it or not, it's still a speculative asset. It's a long duration asset in an arising interest rates environment. Sure. It's, it's going to get hammered. And so, you know, it's not a shock that it's, it's kind of fallen the extent that it has. What's very interesting. And what I think has my attention now mm is you basically detonated the crypto market and Bitcoin is holding firm at like 16, 17, like, mm-hmm. and it's not really moving. Mm-hmm. And when something, when you have like a neutron bomb go off in a sector and everything falls, but one thing you go, you should be looking at that going, Oh, that's interesting. What, mm-hmm. what am I missing here? And so Bitcoin has a lot of like relative strength right now where I would have thought it would have gotten absolutely obliterated. I find it interesting at these levels. Um, 
what's keeping me from pulling the trigger is Tether is almost certainly a fraud. I mean, we, 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 I don't, I mean, it's, I don't, you know, I haven't been, I honestly haven't been down that rabbit hole. Okay. Well, you need to, if you're, if you own Bitcoin, you need to go down the Tether rabbit hole because, you know, in as much as you might think that there's a hard cap on the supply of Bitcoins, there's absolutely not a hard cap on the, the, the money flowing into the space through Tether. Uh, mm -hmm. and what that might be doing for boosting incremental demand. And it's almost certainly a fraud. I mean, I don't say that lightly. It's certainly a fraud. Mm -hmm. And so if if Tether, and I don't know what that means, right? So you could come yeah. up tomorrow and say, Tether has no, the, the, the dollar backing on Tether is not there. They don't have, the, they, they certainly don't have the reserves that they stated that they had. Uh, it was all made up. They, they created fake capital flows into Bitcoin, Okay, fine. I don't really know what that means. Maybe it means mm -hmm. Bitcoin drops another 50%. I have no idea. But until I get some clarity around Tether, it's clear to me that Tether has been a massive source of incremental flows in, in, in incremental demand for Bitcoin. And until you get some clarity around what that all means to the ecosystem, I just like, I'm kind of out. And the other thing I think is just like, when you look at Bitcoin from a longer term perspective, like it's not hard to see the cycles. If you plot the price of Bitcoin on a log chart, it's really clear that, you know, you can basically wait to the halving roll it forward another year and you get another speculative boom. And, and then, you know, that ramps up and then it kind of falls like what we're seeing. You get this kind of crypto winter, quote unquote, for a couple of years. And then it rolls close to the next halving cycle and the whole process repeats. And so like, mm -hmm. we're kind of in that, what's traditionally been that crypto winter where you wait for the next halving and then you, know, you, you, you buy it all up kind of like six months after the halving and you wait for the cycle to repeat. Um, and so I don't think there's any rush. Like the only thing that would change my mind on that is if you came out where the regulators in the U S said, okay, fine, we're going to allow ETFs. Um, and, and all of a sudden now you can let the institutional investors get significant exposure. Well, that would certainly increase the demand profile. Um, but barring something like that, I just think there's too much clarity. I don't think like, I don't see what the impetus is for another big leg, leg up mm -hmm. in Bitcoin until you get closer to the next having cycle. So it's like, well, it just feels like it's probably going to be dead money. And then you got this tether issue overhanging. I just don't really know what that all means for this ecosystem. But when you have like a massive player in the space, it's clearly a fraud. Like I, I don't, I don't need to be there. So I'm just going to wait on it, but I don't hate Bitcoin by any means. Just, I'm not one of those people that's like, Oh, it's a fraud. There's no value to it. No, it's absolutely. It's, it's a brilliant piece of, um, of, uh, you know, engineering. And, uh, and, and I think it's, it's designed to endure. It's not, I don't believe it's tackable. I don't believe it's fake. Um, I just, I, I'm just not there right now. I just don't have strong conviction on it. Interesting. Yeah, I love this. Now we get to talk to Ben about real estate and Bitcoin, get his views on both. This is amazing. Um, yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that, Ben. Kind of, you know, didn't I didn't know what you were going to share. So I, I didn't realize that you were- not a hater. I'm not a hater. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, yeah. I, I fully intend to own it again. I just, you know, it's like anything else. There's a time and a place. So I'm just- no. Yeah, that's really, that's really, yeah, it's a really valid, really valid, it's a valid argument for sure. Yeah. Um, and so Ben, before we let you go, how would you wrap up the real estate market or anyone thinking about the real estate? There's too many angles. That's not even a fair question for you. Is just like too much going on? But I guess just what would you say you're looking for going forward? Would it be the spring market inflection point, which yeah. way things are going to break? Yeah, I, I really think kind of the big things you'd be watching right now is like inventory trends going into the spring. Mm -hmm. um, that's like a, a really big one for kind of like the direction of the next leg. And and I and I do think there's reason to be optimistic around the demand side. If you get a bit of rate stability, I do think there's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines. You know, that'll come back. Um, but yeah, supply is the big one. And then kind of it's harder to track, but just sort of 
keeping tabs on like where the pinch points are. And so that kind of private non-prime credit space, like I, I think we're probably in the early stages before mm-hmm. selling out of that space. And then as you guys noted, the pre-construction space, I think we're probably like inning one or maybe even still in the warm up of like yeah. just some, yeah. some pain coming from a lot of those investors. Ben, always uh, appreciate your time. We've kept you a few minutes too long here. So I want to wrap up with you. If anyone's going to find you, I, anyone listening to this has to follow Ben on Twitter. So if you're at all on Twitter, you just share such incredible information. I, I think one of your tweets that really caught my attention were the population growth in Canada versus the U.S., you know, I think you put that out maybe yep. a week ago yep. or a couple of weeks ago, just such great information. So we will link to your Twitter handle, but if you could just share your Twitter handle now. Sure. And then I know you do a bunch of different things. So if you could just lay out where people can find you and some of the things that you offer, could you, yeah. Could you please share that? Sure. Yeah. So Twitter is uh, at Ben Rabbity. So you guys can link to that, the show notes or whatever. Um, but for those who are involved in the real estate space in some capacity, um, I do have a research offering. So, you know, do kind of, research notes every other week. We do quarterly update calls, create infographics for marketing. So if you're in that kind of, you know, real estate sales or mortgage space development, um, some, some interesting tools available for you there. So that's uh, edgeanalytics.ca. You can check out, you can sign up to see for a month for free. If it's not your cup of tea, pretty easy to, to fire. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, and that's I just want to just want to share on that. We are subscribers to that and it's amazing information. 100%. So I think we've been subscribers from pretty much day one. And yeah, we just you guys were one of the love. first, I think you were like first within the first like five people to subscribe for sure. So I appreciate yeah. your support. Well, we that. were trying to get some of this information ourselves. And then you you come along and you're like, Hey, I'll just assemble what I've been doing in this beautiful format here. So we are huge fans of it. it gives you a lot of clarity into what's going on. So we are absolute fans. And um, yeah, we want you selfishly to just keep putting that information out because we just love it so much. <laughs> well, so thanks, uh, thank appreciate you. It. Yeah. Thank you for that. So, and then anything else you wanted to share? No, I think that's it. I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's going to be an interesting time for your, I know you get a lot of investors in the space mm-hmm. and I, I think, um, you yeah, know, it's going to be some interesting times coming up, probably some good opportunities. So just keep your eye open and, uh, you know, just don't get, don't get swept away by the fear side and the fear mongering in the media, but don't, also just don't, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't, 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 don't drink the, you know, 25% guaranteed, guaranteed? nonsense, right? Just, yeah. You know, up, to, up to 25%, Ben. Right. Up to, you right. up to 25%, but no more. Yeah. It's not 26. That's right. <laughs> ben, thank you so much for this. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. guys. Good to chat. Hey everyone, hopefully you enjoyed that episode with Ben. His Twitter handle is at Ben Rabidou, which is B-E-N-R-A-B-I-D-O-U-X. We'll link to it in the show notes if you can't remember that. And you can get access to one of his investment services at edgeanalytics.ca. That's edgeanalytics.ca. And if you're listening to this and you want access to free books and reports and videos and podcasts like this, all of that is available to you at rockstarinnercircle.com. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.